Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is Diane Katz, Ph.D., who is president of the Working Circle Team Building, Inc. We will discuss how to have difficult conversations. As a Vanna, Georgia-based organization consultant and author of Win at Work, The Everybody Wins Approach to Conflict Resolution, Diane has a doctorate degree in conflict resolution from Union Institute. Previously, she was a human resources executive at American Express, Chase Bank, KPNG Pete Marwick, and Alexander and Alexander. Diane's experience spans 40 years. During that time, she has spoken to groups in the United States, Europe, Mexico, and Canada about decision-making, conflict resolution, organization development, and professional development. Diane, welcome. Hi, thank you. It's really nice to be here, Elena. This is a topic that seems to me applies to just about everybody because sooner or later, probably sooner, we all have difficult conversations, difficult conversations at work with our colleagues, with our bosses, with our direct reports, with clients. It's a never-ending list. You, You can't really have human interaction without having some sort of conflict, right? Yes, Um, and and if we didn't have conflict, life would be boring and there would be no creativity. So uh, we need conflict. It's just the kind of conflict and how often that determines how happy we are. I remember from your book, we profiled your book a, a few weeks ago, that one of the things that you said I found was very interesting. You said conflict in and of itself is not good or bad. It just is. What you do with it is what matters. Would you tell us a little bit about that? Well, um, from the time we're children to the time we are, you know, seasoned professionals, there is conflict in life. And um, there are people who thrive on it and provoke it. And then there are people who go, oh, I hate conflict. I don't want any part of it. Conflict is as much a part of our life as breathing is. And so... When, if, if I were to go to the office today and, um, and someone uh, kind of I had conflict with, it would determine um, how, I had, how I viewed my day. But how I handle that conflict can help me as a professional, can help how I'm viewed as a professional, and how I feel about myself. So I kind of differentiate between constructive and destructive conflict. That happens, particularly at work, since we're really focusing on work. The construct of conflict is if you and I are in conflict and we use it for problem solving, creativity, for improving our relationship, for improving the bottom line. Then we're both working together for the goals of the organization. On the other hand, destructive conflict is if you and I are in conflict at work, and I'm working my agenda, and I'm not sharing information with you, and I don't necessarily look to resolve the conflict with you because I have, I, I'm, I'm really trying to just accomplish my own goals, then we're both not working towards the accomplishing the goals of the organization, and that's really destructive, both for me as a professional and the organization I work for. How would you define conflict. It may seem like a very basic question, but as we're having the conversation, I think, well, so how do you know? Is it just that you're angry at someone? Is it that you disagree? How do you know when there's conflict? Basically, it's, it's, it's two, two things that exist at the same moment that really can't exist at the same moment. So two people want the same thing or want opposing things. Um, so it's, it's really um, having opposition in terms of wanting or having or needing two things that are n- not possible to happen at the same time. Now, sometimes you have people that disagree with you but don't necessarily tell you to your face. They go and handle things in a less overt way than you might expect. Would you still think of that as conflict? Yes, and that's that. Um, that's very often uh, indicative of cultural differences, um, our ethnicity as well as our geography. 
So, for example, I'm originally a New Yorker, and in New York, um, if I call someone and they don't want what I have, they'll just say, no, thanks. Um, I've lived in Tucson, Arizona, and just moved to um, Savannah, Georgia, but I have more experience because I was in Tucson for 16 years, and I'm only in uh, Savannah two months. In Tucson, what struck me was I would say, oh, well, would you like this? And the person would say, oh, yes, I would, and um, I'll call you. And I'd be very excited, waiting for them to call, and they would never call because, oh, yes, I like it, and I'll call you is also another way of saying no. Um, and so if if perhaps we worked together in an office together and I said, could you help me on this project? And the person would say, oh, yes, I will, and then I'm expecting help and I don't get it, that is a form of conflict, yes. And so it's, it, it really has a lot to do, um, and, and different organizations have different cultures about how they handle conflict. So one, one organization, they might handle conflict by yelling, and so you hear a lot of yelling in the office. Another, another organization might be very, very polite, and so they never really deal with the conflict. So it's kind of like a blister that never goes away and it never gets resolved. And plus the organizational culture, plus we all, you know, our ethnicity. I mean, this is a Hispanic um, uh, site that you, you and I are, are at. Um, there are different cultural um, uh ways of of expressing conflict and or avoiding conflict that we all have to be uh, conscious of and compassionate about with each other so that when I did move to uh, Tucson and I was used to being much more direct, I had to learn and accept that there were other ways. It wasn't just my way. And that helps for conflict to be resolved in a much more professional manner. It's interesting that you talked about different ethnicities and different cultures. That made me think beyond the U.S. borders, for example, about some countries in Asia where it's actually impolite to use the word no. Mm -hmm. It's considered rude if somebody asks you something for you to reply with a no. You go around it, as you were saying earlier, by saying yes, but the kind of yes that you say is a different kind of yes. Yeah, right, right. And and so um, I that highlights the point about about cultural awareness um, both um, what we're talking about national differences, uh, eth ethnic differences, but very very different um, uh, cultures and organizations. So when I worked at American Express, it was a much more uh, direct and aggressive culture, and, and no judgment there, just description. And it was very different from the culture at Chase, at Chase Bank, which originally started out as a family business, the Rockefeller family. So it was, so how culture was dealt, how conflict was dealt with was very different. So when we think of culture, it can be as big as national and it could be as small as a small entrepreneurial company that reflects the personality of the entrepreneur. So if the entrepreneur is a person who wants everybody to get along, you know, really just focuses on, you know, let's not talk about the tough stuff because I want everybody to like each other and like me then you're going to have an organization where the, the conflict isn't necessarily directly dealt with. So it goes from the macro to the micro. If you are in a situation where, like you were discussing earlier, it might be a different culture to what you're used to, say, with the example that you used with Arizona, how do you know that there is a conflict that there is a difference of opinion that is not apparent to you right away. Is there some sort of a self-test or a group test? How do you, how are you, do you become aware of the conflict? If it's at work, the, the best way to, that you're going to find out is if you, if you are able to accomplish your goals. If you're able to accomplish your goals, by relying on working on collaborating with others, 
then the conflict is 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 either non-existent or or so minimal that it's not getting in your way. If you're not getting information that you need, if you're having some some lack of cooperation from someone, even though they're saying the right words, but you're really not getting the results. Uh, if you've asked for something and you're told it's coming, it's coming, and it doesn't come, that's how you start to find out, hmm, there's, some, there's more than meets the eye here, and there is um, kind of like that passive-aggressive conflict that happens where everybody's smart. You know, it's like I just moved to the South, with Southern hospitality where people smile and say hi, but that doesn't mean they necessarily want to be your friend. So that's, you start to learn and you learn the signals. And plus when you start in a new organization, you, your eyes are open and you're learning, you're learning all the acronyms that people use in that particular company, but you're also learning how people communicate. And one of the ways that I see people do that necessarily without even being conscious is you learn how to dress when you go to a company. Let's say I, I dressed in, um, you know, very formally in formal business where uh, uh, before I moved to, to Tucson or Savannah. And then when I moved there and I start to work in a company, I go, ooh, people are wearing, it's really casual. And what they, what they call business is really what we used to call casual. So I learn. And I follow the signs and everybody does that. It just, in terms of conflict, it's becoming more conscious about it. And then the second, the second point that going to this question that you asked and the last question, language becomes extremely important. The use of language, the words that are okay to use, the words that are not okay. So for example, if you work in a division or a small company where cursing happens a lot. That doesn't mean you like to or want to, but you see the way that that's going to be a little more aggressive in terms of the way that conflict is handled. If you see that um, uh, the, there is never any direct you know, um, uh, communication with a person who's higher up on the food chain or people who are higher up on the organization chart are called by their last name. You can see that there is a certain inequality, which means you have to be extremely careful with using what I call non-charged language, which is neutral language, rather than you made me do this. This is what happened last week. So you see the difference. Are there differences, say, that you can generalize by gender or geographic location, such as the example you gave between New York and Georgia and Arizona? Are there ways that can help you, maybe for people who are language in terms of those nuances impaired or who are less able to pick up on those clues in the uh, corporate culture and those language that you were talking about a minute ago, are there things that can help you along the way, such as gender and geography and so forth? Yes, there's lots. Um, uh, One of the people I've read a lot of, of her books, um, she writes about the gender differences between men and women, and that's Deborah Tannen, T-A-N-N-E-N. Uh, one of her classic books is You Just Don't Understand, and, and it really basically describes how the difference between how men and women speak generally, again, men tend to come from independence and women come from relationship. So for just as a quick example, if a man and woman are married and the, the guy, the husband gets a phone call and, and the, the, the husband gets a call from an old college buddy and the college buddy says, I'm coming into town this week. And the, and the husband says, that's great. You'll come. You'll stay at our house. And he goes home and he says to his wife, John's coming to visit this weekend. She says, oh, my God, why didn't you tell me? Because he operates from independence. Women, on the other hand, if the wife got the call, she would say, oh, let me call my husband. Let me make sure we're okay this weekend. Let me see what I could do. So you could see the difference. So that's there. There, there are lots of resources, and Deborah Tannen is an excellent one about about the difference between the way men and women communicate. M- my book talks about the difference between 
in organizations between the masculine and the feminine and the feminine being the more when you hear language and I use lots of examples in the book when you hear more examples about getting along um, with uh, not necessarily being aggressive, um, being conciliatory, uh, perhaps even uh, withdrawing. Um, uh, th- that kind of language is the more feminine language, whereas the more masculine language is we got to go out there and we got to kill those guys. We got to we got to knock knock their heads off in terms of 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 our sales results. Though that becomes more of the masculine way of communicating. Um, also there, there are, um, some of the, the foundation of my work comes from the work in the field of emotional intelligence. And, um, there's, uh, Daniel Goleman has written a number of books on emotional intelligence and they're really wonderful and they, they help you to understand, um, how one can learn to resonate to get along with your environment and the people who are in your environment. And the process that I describe in my book called The Working Circle talks about how no matter what is going on culturally around you, if you follow a particular thought process that I offer in the book, then people can really acclimate more easily to what's going on. And and um, And also one of the helpful hints I would give people is latch on to someone at work or if you've moved like I moved across the country find someone who there's some sort of rapport with that you feel comfortable asking is it okay if I do this you know or or did I understand him right when he said this because I'm not sure that my filter was the appropriate filter and that really helps a lot as well. Now we know for example that in some cultures, it's not okay to have a certain demeanor if you are from a certain ethnic group or a man or a woman, so that even if the rest of the group communicates in a certain way, you need to be aware of what your position is within that structure because you may not be able to communicate that way. How do you get your finger on the pulse of that? I think the the primary way is observation. I'll, I'll give you an example. I um, I also teach college, and when I moved to Tucson, I wanted to teach college, and so I was given the task of teaching on the Indian reservation of the Tohono O'odham. And um, I was from New York, and I had just come from living in Chicago, and so I had read, but I hadn't had real experience. And so here I am. I look you in the eyes. I'm direct, you know, and if you're late, I'll ask, you know, what happened? How come you weren't on time? And I tried that once, and I saw that I, the other person shut down when I said, how come, you know, what happened? Why you were late? And I said it. I thought nicely. And so I saw the door closed, and I had to learn and then understand more and say, I'm really sorry. I see that the way I communicated was not effective. And so I'm, I'm willing to shift my ways. And I didn't ask for help because that would have been another direct question. And so observation really, really helps. And to be, to be conscious about your observation. So when, if you're starting a new job, if you're moving to a new town, what strikes us always is what's different because it's not comfortable or familiar. Just see what's different and say, how can I best deal with this? How can I best deal with this person? Let, let me observe a little more. If you feel someone is, is kind of running, running over you and being aggressive, that doesn't mean you can't say anything. But to be, to be compassionately uh, assertive is really a wonderful skill that, come, that talk, I talk a lot about in my book. But to be able to say, you know, I heard what you said and I could really hear it better if you just said it in a different way because I, I, I'm, I'm having some difficulty with how, you, with, how you, with how you were talking to me. That's absolutely fine no matter where you are because you're showing that you're standing up for yourself but that you're also a compassionate person. What would you say are the most common sources of conflict in the work environment? 
probably the most frequent because I do done a lot of work over the last oh god 25 years is job design so for example you think it's your job to do something I think it's my job and we both go at it and we're so you see what I mean by job design or um you think it's not your job to do something I don't think it's my job to do it and it doesn't get done and our manager is oh my gosh what's going on here so when I call poor job design, it's it's really about, are people clear? What are the objectives of the organization? And how am I supposed to work with other people? And what's your job? How am I supposed to support you and your job and vice versa? We don't really talk enough about that at work. So that would be one. The second is how we're paid. If you've ever walked into a retail outlet where if one person gets a bigger bonus, the other person gets a smaller bonus, they they kind of like all over you when you walk into the store. Have you been helped yet? Have you been helped yet? Have you and you know, it's nice to have good service, but at the same time, they shouldn't be competing for their bonuses with each other. They should all be working towards getting a great bottom line for the organization so that they can all get good bonuses. So compensation is often often um, uh, a, a cause of conflict. And the third most frequent reason for uh, conflict is uh, when people are treated on with, with uh, they're not treated equally. So Elena, you're, you and I are salespeople and um, you're, you're doing a really great job and I'm doing a I'm doing a good job, but not a great job. But you you know you want this and you want that and you want this and you want that and 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 my boss our boss just caves into you a because you're doing a little bit better than I am, which that's okay. But at the same time, it's causing animosity between the two of us. And once animosity happens in any one of the three examples I'm giving you, job design, compensation, or unequal treatment, there stops being a constant, consistent flow of information. And once there's not that consistent flow of information between people, between teams, you have an organization that becomes dysfunctional because information is the lifeblood in an organization. So there's a meeting next Wednesday at 9 o'clock you you're you know about it, but you don't tell me because you don't want me to show up. So you don't tell me, and and the meeting starts, and I'm not there, and then I have egg on my face. Does that does that explain what you were asking? Absolutely. You you shared the what you believe are the three top sources of conflict in the work environment. Would you say that the responsible party generally is management? Is, is Does the conflict start at the management level mostly? Well, um, management sets the tone. So there are times when management wants people to fight with each other because they think that will help the organization. And that's not necessarily a fun place to work. Um, Oftentimes, managers have a very hard time with conflict themselves, and so they don't know what to do when there's conflict. And part of what I teach is how to be a mediator, because managers need to mediate. Um, and, and so managers, A, set the tone, either positively or negatively. You know, I mean, you could go to work and in a in a division or in a small entrepreneurial company the manager the manager sits down how often does a team meet um, uh, does a manager say at meetings you know Jim you know what you did last week really hurt the rest of the team that kind of stuff that doesn't help uh, so a manager consciously or unconsciously can really um, help conflict become an opportunity for creative problem solving, which is where we want to go, or it can be the opportunity of lots of hidden and individual agendas. Uh, and one of the things I I see with with um, you know we expect managers to be good at so many different things, 
and they can't be good at everything. And so, um, and and I believe that they don't get enough help in how how to deal with conflict, especially entrepreneurs who have so many items in terms of managing the business on their shoulders. Entrepreneurs really need, really need, I would say 60, 60% of the time they need help in terms of dealing with conflict with their, within their organizations. What's the best way to go about doing that? It, because it can be challenging, of course, either for them to realize that they're the source of the problem, and even if they do, to figure out how to address it. How do you go about doing that if whether you're the manager and you realize that maybe you're, there are some issues of this kind in your company, or maybe you're a direct report or someone in the organization, perhaps an outside consultant, and you're seeing signs that there are these types of problems, what's the best way to go around it? Well, if you're in an organization and you are either the entrepreneur owner or you are the head of a team or a division and there is stuff going on, the best thing to do is to get help, either through your HR department if you value them and what they can do and their skill level, or you get some outside help uh, who can be um, do get, give you help, but not just the help, but so that you you understand what the issues are, but how everyone can learn different behavior so that you can move the for- organization forward. It really is about learning and not about blaming. If you are not at the manager level and you see that there's so much stuff going on and you really like working where you work, but it's just becoming so difficult. If you sit down with, and this has happened because this is how I've gone into a large number of organizations. You sit down with the leader and you say, you know, this is a really great place to work. And I think it could be a greater place to work if we took care of some of the issues that are getting in the way of us working together. Um, what do you think, boss? And so that's, you know, um, a, 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 an option for someone who doesn't necessarily have the power to make the decision. And then thirdly, when I come into an organization, the first thing I do is an assessment and I'll talk to either everyone or a randomly selected sample of the a whole group to get everyone's perspective on what's working, what's not working, and then reflect back that assessment to everybody. And generally, usually everybody goes, yeah, that's the truth, and but they don't know what to do to change behavior. And again, if you think any of us who have been in families of any size, as soon as you're together with your family, old behavior comes up because everybody gets caught up in it. And so unless there's someone to say, hmm, you all really could do much better if, why don't we try this? And then, oh, wow, yeah, why didn't we think of that? Are there situations where there's just no fix? Well, um, from the employee point of view, there are times because you've tried, excuse me, you banged your head against the wall, uh, you really want to do a good job, and you're just frustrated and so you spoke to your boss and maybe your boss is the source of the problem. Um, you, you feel unappreciated. All the negative things we all know can happen in our work life. Then this is a wonderful country. You have choice and you write your resume and you go somewhere else. That's for the employee. For the company, for the manager, for the, for the entrepreneur, if you think there's no way of fixing this and you bring in outside help or you bring in your HR department and still, then you might need to shift some people around. You might need to do that. Uh, but I have to tell you, and again, there's this, the process that I use in my book, The Working Circle, which is a non-confrontational process. Once people, and this is the last... 15 years I've been using it. Once people sit down and they want to figure it out, 
they figure it out and resolve the conflict 100% of the time. Now, there are going to be times when you're dealing with people that don't want to resolve it, maybe for personal reasons, maybe they feel insecure, for whatever reasons you may or may not know about, there are going to be times that you encounter people that are not vested in the solution of the the resolution of the conflict. What do you do under those circumstances? Well, if I am, <clears throat> if they're my coworker and I'm an employee, I either seek, if, and if and if I, I go to human resources or I go to my boss and I try and seek some solution um, uh, around this person, if this person is valued, uh, if if everything I try doesn't work, then and I can't get my job done effectively and it's really making my home life miserable because I go home and I'm just so unhappy, then I might need to shift and either transfer if it's a large enough company or go somewhere else. And that would be very, very hard because when people end up that way, which is not very often, they feel like, why should I be the one to go? I'm not the one at fault. But there, is, there hasn't any, been any solution. On the other hand, if you're a manager or a business owner and you have someone like that and you've tried and you've given them coaching and you've tried to mediate and it's not working, I always counsel my uh, clients to let that person go because if you keep them, if you reward them, if they get one penny more on their paycheck, they're being rewarded for their negative anti-organizational behavior. As we see increasing diversity in the country, the latest census results were very revealing in that regard. And I think it said the growth of the country for the past 10 years, 80% of the growth was coming from diverse emerging markets. There's an increase in communication styles and different backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds, religious backgrounds, cultural backgrounds. Do you see this as a potential source of increased conflict in the workplace? Absolutely. Um, It's also a source of increased and way richer creativity and problem solving. And the, the way it is a source of um, conflict is, um, well, you know, I was the most senior woman in a company, and, um, and the, the, I know how some of the men viewed me as competition that shouldn't be competition, and that was not the majority, but... The increased diversity, if you have wise management, really allows you to let people express their differences and to come up with creative problem solving. On the other hand, the, um, the joking, uh, the nature of joking, which can be, you know, can be harsh at work, which causes, which can cause conflict. Many years ago, um, the kinds of jokes you heard were were that you would hear ethnic slurs and you would hear things that were so distasteful and and um, and then it became a, a, a form of teasing and it's it's just not okay. And I think um, as we live in a country that is highly polarized. Uh, it's not just the diversity, the ethnicity, it's also the political diversity that causes conflict at work. Um, so I think that we need to be able to learn how to express our opinions in ways that it's clear it's my opinion, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm right. And it, it really takes an inordinate amount of sensitivity on the part of organizations, leaders, to be able to uh, embrace differences 
Uh, and and I, I see it done. I see it done in small entrepreneurial companies where, and 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 it it's not that things are hidden, but it's more that, you know, Elena, you're you're Hispanic, and 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 we want to reach the Hispanic market more. What what are we missing here? Because we're a bunch of people who really haven't been exposed to the Hispanic market as much, and to be able to talk about it that way, I think enriches a company and enriches conversation. Are there policies that you think companies should be embracing, placing in their uh, corporate environment, studying to address this increasing diversity? And as you said, it's not just ethnic and uh, geographic diversity, cultural diversity, but it is increasingly a polarizing political diversity that is a source of conflict in in our country. Are there policies that you think are particularly appropriate that they should embrace? Well, um, the benefits that uh, companies offer, one of the the, um, interesting ideas I've done with a number of clients uh, is that Employees have gotten um, two hours a week, or some a small number of hours a week, two, three hours a week, or or every other week, or a month, a month to go and volunteer at a nonprofit, um, and do it as an employee of the organization, almost as a representative. And of course, the organization has to be sanctioned, so it couldn't be a hate organization or something like that. But that's an interesting policy and practice for some companies because then, let's say you have 50 employees on a, on a small company and, and 40 of them have chosen to do that. Well, you have 40 ambassadors going out into the community showing what a diverse company this is and how you embrace that. That's a that's a, a really nice benefit, and it, I think it really aids the community. I think um, uh, the fact that there can be maternity or paternity, I mean, they're not called that, but in terms of when you have children, um, being able to go and vote, uh, religious observance, how that's handled in terms of policies, um, promotion of practices and policies in terms of um and especially this is even more important for small companies when you have, you know, 100 or more employees. Um, what does it take to get promoted here? Because there's always a feeling, 95% of the time, of that there's favoritism. But if it's clearly defined, what does it take to get promoted? What do I need? Um, the way that performance reviews are carried out, I think that's extremely important. Other policies, I think, in terms of promotions, in terms of how quickly um, uh, one can uh, get the benefits that are offered, you know, how long is the waiting period, because some people really need it more than others. Um, the whole piece with, with immigration and, and how, how the company is dealing with uh, checking for um, uh, citizenship or, or visas. I'm not being very specific, but those would be the areas that I, a, a good HR department or an or an HR um, consultant can really do a uh, survey and check to see: Are you meeting the needs of your employees, or are you meeting the needs of only the leadership? What about situations where employees feel so? powerless or perhaps situations where there it's not necessarily an employee uh, say for example a TSA situation at the airport where uh, and this has been in the news recently children are being subject of pat downs and parents and many other folks are concerned about the, that situation or maybe you're in a courtroom and uh, you're subject to the orders of a judge. Is there a way to deal with those situations where you 
maybe you're the boss at the office, but in this particular situation, you are powerless. How do you go about the conflict resolution in a non-combative way? Do you have any suggestions for that? Um, well, based on what's been going on in Wisconsin and Maine and Michigan, you also have the whole piece of collective bargaining and, and unions on top of everything that you're describing. And um, if, I'm, if I'm working in a place, uh, and I'm thinking of a specific example now, someone was working in a place where they really took issue with a practice that was being carried out at the employer. And this person was seemed like was the only person that had a problem. Well, so what can you do? Um, if you start to talk to some of your peers and say, do you have a problem too? You, you might get support. You might not get support. Um, you have to be careful because employers who don't have unions are very, very sensitive to having groups of employees come to them because they don't want to have that because they want to avoid having unions. And, and there's some, some really positive and negative reasons for that, and, and, and that's important to know. But kind of getting a sense of if you have an issue with something that's being done at your company, what impact is it having on the bottom line? What impact is it having on results? Because there's a difference, and I, again, I'm not judging, I'm just describing here. There's a difference between, you know what we're doing is costing us money and costing us business. And there's a difference between that and, you know, this really isn't right. I used to be in human resources, and when I would come and say, you know, this really isn't right, I didn't get very far. But if I would say, you know, if we continue doing this, we could get sued and it could cost us a lot of money, I would be listened to. So you, So I think in part... And this might sound a little callous, but I think it's effective. You have to build a business case for what you for what's for what's bothering you. So if go to TSA and I'm a TSA um, employee and at our particular place at the airport we're at we're having a lot of problems with patting down kids and the and I would say, well, I would look at all the articles in the paper recently and say, here's the negative press we're getting and here's a suggestion. That's the other piece. Do your homework, look at the impact on the business, and and then have a suggestion rather than saying, you know what, you guys, it's not about what you guys, it's about what we're doing. And here's a suggestion. What do you think about my suggestion? That's very different from complaining, finding fault, and that's one of the core differences in conflict resolution. If you can come with a statement of here's what's happening, here's the impact, and here's my suggestion on how we might handle it differently, then at least you are a person who is coming, thinking about the business, thinking about the organization, and having suggestions. Because managers, most of the time, really appreciate initiative. How do you have that difficult conversation? About the one we were just talking about? Just in general, when you have a situation where there's a conflict and you have to have a difficult conversation with someone, what's the best way to go about it? There's a conflict and you have to address it. How do you First, go about doing that? Okay, sorry. First, you have to go get a double espresso and really make sure that... No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> um, number one, and this is... This, when I've taught this around the country, this is so, it sounds so simple and it is so hard. You speak for yourself. So, for example, I'll use you, Elena, since we're speaking. Let's say we went to a meeting last week and you said something and, boo, I just made me crazy. All right? And so now we're sitting down. It's Monday morning. And I say to you, because I know what I want to say. If And again, this is what my book talks about. If my style is aggressive, I'm going to say, what the heck were you doing last week? Right? In some form of that. If I have a withdrawing style, I might not say anything, but I might not say anything at all to you because I'm so upset inside, which means now we can't have a, an appropriate and productive business relationship. What I can say is speak for myself. Elena, when we when we went to that meeting last Wednesday, I, I 
I got to tell you, I had a hard time with with what you said. It, it was, um, I got upset, and it was when you said X, Y, Z that um, I just had, I really had a, a hard time. And, and I'd love for us to talk about it because I really want to have a good working relationship with you. So what I just did was I didn't blame you. I didn't accuse. I told you, you said something. As a result of that, I react. I own my reactions. I don't blame you for my reactions. I have to tell you about a lady in a seminar I taught in Washington, D.C., and she's like the best example of this because she was just so wonderful. This was a class on conflict resolution at a large accounting firm, and, and there were about 20 people in the class, and there was one lady there, and I was talking about this because this is about giving what is called an I message. This is how I feel, what I need, what I want, not about what you did. And so we're talking about this and she raises her hand and she was this, maybe she was five feet tall and she was very, very neat. You know, she was a, she looked like she'd be a perfect administrative person. She was just so neat and precise. And she said, you know, I work for someone in the office here who just always yells and everybody kind of like was figuring out they knew who, who she worked for, you know, because people have reputations and she said, you know, and one day I went into her office and I said, you know, I really want to do a good job for you. I believe I do a good job for you and I would do a better job for you if I, and I would appreciate it if you wouldn't yell when, I, when, we, when we interacted. Everybody in the room got silent and it was almost as if all the air was sucked out of the room. And I said, and so what happened? And she said, well, she stopped yelling at me. She still yells at everybody else, but she doesn't yell at me anymore. And that's a perfect example of someone who probably earned one-sixth of what the person earned that she was talking to, or probably one-tenth. Um, but she was able to give an iMessage and say, this is how I feel. This is what I need. And I'd really like us to be able to talk about it. That's how you have a difficult conversation. Are there personality types or profiles that are the more common conflict creators, if you will, and ways to deal with them. Are there any thoughts that you have on that? Uh, yeah, they're in my family. I'd like you to meet them. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, there is there is the... Again, I, I have a, a conflict style questionnaire in my book, and it goes from the aggressive to the withdrawing. And in, I see those two as conflict creators and or perpetuators. So the, the aggressive person who's in your face, pointing their finger, blaming you, you know, um, uh, the bully, the, the aggressive person. Um, they 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 create conflict very often and and often enjoy it. Um, then on the other hand, the people who can in a lesser way create conflict, but in a greater way perpetuate it, are those people who withdraw. So I work with a bully, and the bully comes into my office and says blah 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 blah, and raises their voice, blah, blah, and I don't say anything. And they walk out. Well guess what? I've just told that person it's okay to talk that way to me and we never get the conflict resolved. So those are the two types that that um, kind of perpetuate or instigate conflict. There's, an, there's another one which might be a little surprising and those are the people who are always, and I use that word carefully, always willing to compromise. I'll give a little, you give a little. I'll give a little, you give a little. They're really, if they do that, they're actually on some level and very often perpetuating conflict because they're never satisfied. They're always giving away stuff. They're Okay, okay, you could have that, I'll do it. And so they, they do a little bit too much of giving it away. So those would be the kinds of types. And, and the, the best way to deal with the aggressive person is to be stand on your feet and uh, maintain eye contact and 
go back to what I was saying a couple of minutes earlier, speak for yourself. And uh, if somebody said, you know, I left five messages for you, and this was another example of another, another client that did uh, a lot of um, uh, customer service over the phone. Um, I, I left five voicemails for you, and this could, this could be also a customer. You know, and where the hell were you last week, and blah, 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 blah. You know what? I really want to resolve this issue, and I can, and let's do that, and I would appreciate it if you wouldn't yell. Some people, that's really scary to say, but the more you practice it, it's amazingly effective because the best thing to do with a bully is to stand up to them, not in similar kind, but in a way of being quietly assertive. Um, the person who withdraws all the time, thats in some ways that's almost more of a challenge. You need to be able to make set up an environment where it is okay to disagree. It is okay to disagree. So th there, there aren't penalties for someone uh, voicing their opinion that's not with the general flow, and that takes some time. And the one that's willing, to, always willing to compromise, does that fall under the same response style as the one who, that withdraws? One way I, I found effective with people like that, and that's been, probably that happened more in my family, and then I was able to transfer it over to work, and I've seen that with coaching clients as well, is to say, what is it that you want? If you could have whatever you want, what would that look like? What would that feel like? What would that be? And then be quiet. And let them first be able to say, well, here's what I, I mean, if you're asking me, here's what I'd like. Okay, so let's start from there. And for all three, the aggressive person, the compromiser, and the withdrawing person, the process that I have in my book helps people who are of different styles to be able to sit down. And you don't have to say, I have this process, I want to use it with you. Just ask the questions, and the process talks about asking questions so that you can deal with the aggressive person and you can deal with the other two types depending on your type. I mean, if, if I'm aggressive and you're aggressive, it's going to take self-control not to want to poke you in the eye as you've poked me in the eye. So it's really, and it's again, changing the language that we use to be non-charged, non-blame, not about who's wrong or right, focus on the solution rather than the problem. It's interesting that you talk about asking questions that made me think of someone that once said to me, any question you ask is putting someone against the wall because any question that you ask requires an answer. How do you deal with that? Well, let me let me tell you what the questions are in the working circle. And 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 Elena, let's say you you and I are in conflict, and so um, the first question is, "What's the situation?" And so we both give our perspective on the situation, and we're just talking facts. We're not talking about you think I'm wrong, I think you're wrong. We ask this question together. This isn't me asking you. This is me asking us. And so what's the situation? Well, let's see. It's probably been about three weeks since that trip to St. Louis uh, when we had to do that, that um, uh, trip to visit the client that we, you and I have been having some issues. And it started at that meeting in St. Louis. Those are, those are facts. Those are facts. We have a project we have to work on that we have to have completed by May 16th. That's a fact. Okay, so, so, so going back to your comment, the, these questions are, are asked together. This is a non-confrontational process. So the next question is, well, what's, what's, what's negotiable? Well, I don't think the date for the finishing the project is negotiable, but it really is negotiable as to who, who is the primary presenter the next time we make a business trip together. And then you go to what's non-negotiable. You know, it's just not okay that, that um, the way that you spoke to me at that meeting, that's, that's really not okay with me. Okay. You, you see what I'm saying? It becomes, in a way that we're asking these questions together. And the next question is, what have we learned from the past? 
because this conflict resolution process is about learning new behavior. It's not about finding out who's wrong. So what, what have we learned from the past? And then what's our game plan? And how do we expect to change the situation, each other, ourselves? And, and, and asking those questions, it's, it becomes, it's not the finger pointing kind of questions. It is the, hmm, what questions do we need to ask to find resolution? As you share some of these thoughts and we talk about the different personality types and work environments and situations, one of the things that comes to my mind is that a lot of times there's a lot of emotion involved because you have a situation that is ongoing that may be causing pressure. There might be more than one person involved and that you might need an outside observer who is not vested in the situation, who is not part of the ongoing issue to help unravel and have a non-confrontational, facilitate a non-confrontational process. What would you say is the, the likelihood that when there's a conflict in the work environment and outside either outside the group or outside the company, person is important or necessary? Uh, when all efforts have not led to resolution, um, I think that you need either, if you have a strong HR department internally or an external person. The, some of the most wonderful managers I have ever met and, and had the pleasure to work with um, admit that there are things they don't know and say, you know, I'm really not good at this or I, I really need to know more about that. And then they know when to get outside help. Um, I think that when it comes to conflict, sometimes it's it can be viewed as airing dirty laundry. It can be viewed as, you know, I don't want anybody to know about this. Um, but the truth is we all, it happens in every organization. So being able to ask for help, um, there was one, one, uh, client I worked with, which was actually, um, a, um, a very large, um, with a number of locations, a salon and day spa company. And we, we found that there were two managers who were really particularly gifted at mediating once they got the training. And so they wasn't part of their job, you know, um, but they, they, they really helped. So knowing who's, who's, uh, who's, who's, who has skills in, in, in those things, people who are respected, um, who in the company is, can be viewed as a neutral who might be helpful. Um, cause it's not always the outside help. That that um, probably is the last resort, but what internal resources do you have? HR, a strong manager, a resource, a person who is, a, you know, kind of like um, uh, a trusted senior person. Those would be some of the the avenues to that where you can get help. And plus, um, I have I have a a, a client in. Um, in Tucson, who had, um, and actually this was a very, this is interesting, especially pertinent to, to your audience. Um, she's Hispanic and she's working for two non-Hispanic um, entrepreneurs. And there is a definite cultural difference. And so she, she saw she was getting herself into trouble. And so she contacted me to get individual coaching. And now she's way more effective because she's learned how to take her cultural background and be able to adapt better in whatever environment she's working. What percentage of the time would you say when a conflict reaches a certain level, you're, they're going to need some sort of outside help? Would you say that's 80% of the time, 20% of the time? If, if, and if a conflict has gotten to the point where it's getting in the way of bottom line results, if everyone involved isn't working towards accomplishing organizational goals 
and it has continued long enough to have a negative impact on organization results, whether it's for profit or even a nonprofit, then you need help. And first, if you have an HR department, I would go there. And then second, I would go to outside help. And what percentage of the time that that you get at an impasse, I'd say maybe that's 25, 30% of the time. What should you look for if you are in the market for an outside consultant, say someone like yourself? What kinds of qualities should you be looking for? Do you need someone who has a style similar to yours or a corporate culture similar to yours? Or should you look for someone who's the opposite? What kinds of things should you try to identify in the facilitator that you seek to hire? Well, most of the time when we hire, when we, when, when we retain someone, we generally want to have good chemistry, and that means they're in some ways they're like us, and that's fine because that's, that's how we hire people for the most part. What I would look for is someone who has a track record, someone who you could get uh, positive referrals on, um, someone who has the ability to shift their communication, uh, to be able to model, to really truly model the behavior you want to see people exhibit at work, um, and someone who is compassionate, uh, who, who will not participate with you in gossip about somebody in your company who's, oh, yeah, that person's, yeah, they're a troublemaker. I don't, you know, I, that's not okay. Um, and, and someone, the track record and, and, and that they can very clearly outline what they do and what to expect. What amount of time, and I know this is difficult because, of course, conflict, the type of con- size of the group involved and, so forth may be different, but perhaps you can give us a range in terms of the amount of time that you might expect that it will take to resolve a situation or in the amount of resources, time, and money that you might have to allocate to a situation. Can you help us with that? Let me give you there's a, a couple of answers there. If, 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 if you have two people who are not getting along at work and, and you value them both and you don't want to lose either one of them, you could bring somebody in. Um, it could cost you a few thousand dollars and there's mediation and discussion and coaching and, and kind of like training that goes on. And, and within, you know, a couple of months that can, that can be remedied as long as everybody's willing. If you have a team or an organization that is conflicted and has, as I described earlier, destructive conflict, then what you're talking about, it is embedded in the culture. That can cost anywhere from five to $50,000, depending on the size. But that don't expect, because you, when you want to make a cultural change in an organization, you can't expect a cultural change to happen in less than 12 or 18 months. So it's going gonna, it's gonna to take time because part of what you're going to do is train people, coach people, mediate. You're going to look at some systems like compensation, like performance evaluation, like how you recruit, how you promote, um, how jobs are designed. I mean, it could be all a myriad of things. So it, could, it, it really then becomes organization development work, which is this is how an organization um, focuses and functions today, and this is how we want the organization to function. Well, it took a long time for it to get to where it is today, and it's going to take at least 12, 18, 24 months to really change and be the new organization that you want to see. What tips, what suggestions would you share with our listeners, Diane, that they might take back to their work environment or maybe even to their home environment that can help them deal with this conflict or this difficult conversation that we've been talking about, you know, how to have a difficult conversation, how to address conflict? What tips would you share with them? Well, here's, here's 
three takeaways that I think um, that uh, people find very helpful. One, when you are talking to someone you're in conflict with, try to keep the word but out of it. For example, I, I, I want to be able to resolve this with you, but that the but negates what you said. So keep but, just keep but out of your language. Um, and I can make a silly joke, but but keep the but out of your your conversation when you're trying to resolve conflict. The second tip would be um, all bullies can be handled. And number one is you need to look them, maintain eye contact with bullies. Don't don't start looking down at the floor. Don't start picking on your clothing. Just look at them, and 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 maintain a neutral a neutral uh, uh, look. That would be two. And then the second, if you're a manager and you have conflict on your team and someone comes to you and says, I can't work with Jim anymore or Jane anymore. I just, I, I, I don't say, well, tell me what's going on. The first thing a manager should do whenever anybody comes into their office and is complaining about someone else is what have you done to try and resolve it? And if you can't resolve it on your own, I will bring the other person in and the three of us will sit down and talk. Keep the butt out of the conversation. Mm -hmm. Be aware that bullies can be handled. And if you're the manager overseeing a group where there is a conflict, ask the person who's bringing that to your attention what he or she has done to address the issue and, if necessary, bring the two of them together. Yes, don't start getting information from one because then they will perceive that you are on their side. Thank you, Diane, for joining us from Savannah, Georgia. My pleasure. It's really been nice speaking with you, Elena. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Diane Katz, Ph.D., who is president of the Working Circle Team Building, Inc., who discussed how to have difficult conversations. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at HispanicNPR.com.